Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning into this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Noah Rothman. He's the associate editor at Commentary Magazine and a co-host of the Commentary Magazine podcast. He's also the author of Unjust, Social Justice, and the Unmaking of America. He's one of the most thoughtful political, cultural, and social commentators of our day. We had a great conversation about politics, culture, religion, all things Corona. It was a pleasure to have him on, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Noah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, you are a, a, a you are an editor or senior writer, right? For comment for commentaries, that's your title. And writer. my title is associate editor. Associate oh, editor. Right. Okay. How meaningful are those at magazines? Like between senior writer, associate editor. I mean, that's like when we people hear that. Is that like a? It varies from magazine to magazine, obviously. But uh, yeah, I mean, I like to think it matters. Okay, there we go. It matters. There, this is something I know. Like many things. I know very little about. So you guys have taken to podcasting and Corona, like you guys have been cranking stuff out like every day uh, and have been in the midst of New York. I mean, was that a a pretty, was that a spur of the moment decision where you guys like, Hey, we're just going to, we're all locked up, like uh, depressed. Do we want to talk or how how did you guys go from sort of like a couple times a week to like every day? Yeah. um, So that was a decision by, um, my boss, John Pat Horitz, who determined that um, because of the extraordinary nature of the circumstances, that it might be a good idea to uh, document them in a much more regular fashion, a routinized fashion. And uh, it might certainly have some ancillary benefits for us, uh, in part because we have now become so isolated suddenly <laughs> from each other. Um, and it has gotten a very substantial response, and uh, we appreciate it, and we certainly like doing it. it- it's interesting that one of the things I think I appreciate so much about uh, your conversations on the show is it's kind of long form. It's open-ended and it's not as though you guys don't have a political position. I mean, you guys are all center right. And yet you guys managed to be incredibly fair. And I find like, as I, I'm a Democrat and I find that when you guys discuss democratic politics, I don't find it has a caricaturized nature. I think your commentary is as good as if I was listening to just a really smart Democrats. I mean, do you guys, is that, is that kind of an intentional ethos thing or is it just kind of the nature of the personalities that have have been drawn together at commentary? Well, I certainly appreciate that. And uh, your characterization of the podcast is very charitable. So I I won't correct you. I like it. Um, (laughs) I I don't know uh, if there's an ethos involved. I mean, John and I are MSNBC contributors. So we spend quite a fair amount of time among people who I think would describe themselves as center left uh, and were exposed to that um, worldview pretty often, uh, which is important because we know what we think. Um, it's good to know what people who disagree with you think as well. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're fairly exposed to the outside the bubble, um, but I, I wouldn't, I don't think a, uh, a Democrat would characterize the, uh, the podcast as anything other than a conservative podcast with three people, four people who have conservative perspectives, sharing those perspectives. Um, 
So it's honest, but uh, at the same time, I appreciate that uh, it's listenable for people who are otherwise predisposed to disagree with us. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. I reached out to you on Twitter about coming on the show and because you were on Al Sharpton with two uh, African-American activists, and, and he was chiding you about your goatee, for which you normally you're pretty clean-shaven. And I, th- I was thinking about this because I've seen you interact with a lot of Democrats. And, and it, it's, is there something about the New York media culture where – you know, you're an MSNBC, Morning Joe. Like, it, there seems to be, at least it comes off when I see several of many of you interact. Like, there seems to be a genuine affection for these people that you are in a different place politically from. And I think that's just not the experience of most of the country right now, right? Most people do not have these genuine, uh, affectionate relationships with people across the aisle, and where they're actually also talking about the issues a lot. I mean, that is that a new, new like a, a unique feature of New York media culture or? Possibly. Uh, you don't really you don't think that uh, there's that kind of uh, cross-partisan interaction in the rest of the country. I mean, my my assumption is that that's more the norm than the uh, alternative. I, I mean, there's the great sort in which has been documented and characterized by social scientists now for several decades in which people who have a particular political proclivity gravitate towards one another in geographical ways and therefore limit their exposure to people who would otherwise be predisposed to disagree with each other. But I don't know if that's entirely, everybody is hermetically sealed off from one another. More or less people have genuine human interaction and it doesn't usually involve political debate. Um, It is the nature of the business that we're in that we do that quite often. And there is conflict, most certainly. Um, But also it takes a specially kind of insular personality to be so married to your activism that you uh, would would look at someone else who disagrees with you in a dehumanizing fashion and not see, you know, an, another individual, another person there. Those people exist in the business of political media and the, and the business of political activism, most certainly. I mean, I don't think you even get into this business unless you're particularly passionate about it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you also, if you've lost touch with that layer of humanity that allows you to navigate your environment successfully and create interpersonal relationships. And you're probably not going to be especially successful uh, in the business because you're going to generate a lot of antipathy and probably rub a lot of people the wrong way. And so it does help to be a human being uh, as well as somebody with uh, with the personality and opinions and have the capacity to articulate them. Yeah, no, I don't. I think the great sword is a reality. I and mean, I'm not saying that people don't have friends across the aisle, but it's probably not. They're probably not talking about the issues. a lot. I mean, there's this study came out a couple of years ago, right? That I think PPRI or whatever it was saying, like people have more anxiety about people marrying into the other party than they do marrying interracially, which right. is which is I don't know if that's good for race relations. Or bad for my trials, <laughs> you know, half full. Half, I don't know how you look at that, but but that just it's it's like when you say Al Sharpton, right? Like, do you guys joke around? I mean, because he seems like a like he seems like chiding you a little bit at the beard. It's, I was just watching. I was like, wow, that's a genuine. He, he seems like he likes this guy. Like, well, we don't have a lot of contact uh, off the set, um, but we've been on set with each other for off and on. You know, last two years. Uh, so we have, we have a, a professional relationship, surely, and uh, he's a. He's a funny guy and, uh, you know, personable guy. Uh, you have to be in order to be in this position, surely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's also certainly a professional relationship. I, I um, very much enjoy the atmosphere at MSNBC. I mean, I am understood to be somebody who's going to be uh, disagreeing, hopefully not reflexively so, but usually predisposed to disagree. And, uh, you know, 
Uh, coming into that, I guess you you understand what you're getting, but um, off offset, I think there is a certainly a real camaraderie, and if it translates onset, then you know more the better. When you like see like the Saturday Night Live like Joe and Mika skits, are you like, gosh, one day there's going to be a Noah Rothman? Like, I, like God, okay, I'm just you know, I certainly we, hope not. Would you, 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 you have arrived then, right? Like you could, you know, like yes, if, if they, that, yeah, I mean, yeah, that would have been a rival, which is why it's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. I am at, at very at the very most a bit player uh, in MSNBC. I am I'm very fortunate to be able to have the camera time that I do have, and uh, I really cherish the opportunity to be able to uh, express my opinions when I get the opportunity to do so. It's a uh, it's a real privilege, and I take it very seriously. Um, but at the same time, I certainly don't don't have the kind of star power that the people who carry shows do. Uh, so yes, I don't anticipate that uh, up there on the on the ninth floor, wherever they wherever they work at SNL, whether uh, they're working on a, a sketch for me, I can't even imagine. If, if you ever get a, a, a like a little bit part, remember me when they, you're a bit player. So I, I today I was listening to the New York Times Daily podcast, and they were talking about the Joe Biden campaign, right, and this Corona basement campaign, and how strange it is. But do you think? I mean, it's strange because Biden is up in the and a lot of the swing state polls and apparently Trump is freaking out and said he was going to sue whatever. I mean, he was going to sue uh, his campaign manager. about the poll. I mean, it's just, you know, this is, this is great theater. I mean, it's amazing. But I mean, do you think in a weird way, like having like Joe Biden in the, in, in the, in the equivalent of a kind of media, like a candidate witness protection program, like in the basement, does you think this helps Biden in that? Like you've got a re- candidate that had so many vulnerabilities on the campaign trail. Right. And now he's kind of doing these folksy podcasts, which it sounds like are pretty good. I mean, it sounds like he's he's kind of clicked with the medium and has is, ha- is having these kind of Zoom rope lines, and it's kind of like wow. I mean, th- this is who, who would have predicted that? Like, yeah, this might I don't have know helped. Hurt him? Yeah, I, I mean, look at the numbers. It hasn't hurt him. Yeah, uh, has it helped him? I don't know. I mean, that's sort of hard to quantify. But you most certainly can say that he hasn't been hurt by his. Uh, I, for lack of a better word, because, you know, we're all in this sort of same bizarre position, but it is a bit of a disappearing act. He is controlling his own narrative, his own message. He does very little outside media. Um, And I don't know if he has to right now. It seems, given the extraordinary nature of the circumstances and the crisis, um, all eyes are on the White House and all eyes are on the governors. And Joe Biden exists, and I think he's better served by existing as sort of a hypothetical um, something that can, he is, he's the shadow government, the government in waiting, and he doesn't have a lot to prove. Uh, it is to his advantage for this race to be a referendum on the current president and for, uh, the, to deny the current president, the opportunity insofar as it's possible to transform the election into a referendum on him. That is usually the preferred method by which incumbent presidents campaign for reelection. They transform the narrative into from one of, excuse me, you can probably hear my children in the background, from uh, one that is focused, hyper-focused on an up or down referendum on the last four years of their governments and into one that is exclusively focused on the personal personality defects of and uh, past behavior and indiscretions by the uh, out-party nominee. So if Joe Biden denies, and insofar as he can, is denying Donald Trump the opportunity to do that, then more the better for him. Now, you're beginning to see this narrative about this individual woman, this 1993 sexual assault allegation from a former Senate staffer, Tara Reid, bubble up from something that was a fixation of right-wing 
press to something that has become a much more broader media narrative. It's very complicated for the press and uh, their left-leaning allies because of the nature of the news cycle around Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. It is a cosmic role reversal, and the hypocrisy is such that it plays very well into right-wing narratives and certainly into Donald Trump's hands, and they are using the campaign. The Trump campaign is using this to great effect so far. It has not translated in the polls. Uh, I suspect it is a sideshow relative to the all-consuming importance of the pandemic and the coverage of that, um, but it will subside, and we will get into a general election cycle after the summer, and I don't suspect that story is going away. But denying the president the opportunity to make this race about Joe Biden is Joe Biden's core objective for the spring and the summer. It, do you think that the, 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 the issue of the pandemic hurts conservatism long in the long range, and that people seem to be... I'm shocked at the polls, even like 77% of Republicans or something are saying the measures are adequate or not strong enough. Like, and you know, this sense that we want a lot of government intervention, we want a lot of government, you know, handholding. We want a lot. We, I mean, I, 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 do you, do you think that kind of stuff, like people really wanting the government to act strongly and also like the, the critiques of federalism, like we can't just have a one national response like Belgium or Germany can or something. I mean, do you think, like, do you worry about like, okay, Will this erode? Um, does a pandemic like this erode this sort of intellectual erode conservatism as a movement? Because people just want from the government right now. They want money shoveled out the door. They want. It seems like people again want. I'm shockingly so. I want things that they can comply with. I mean, it's. it's I'm actually quite surprised by it. Yeah, I actually I don't know if I do. Um, certainly, for I am suspicious of anyone who has over the course of this crisis declined to confront any of their ideological priors and preferences. Um, it is such a, a disorienting event that if you have not seriously interrogated at least one of your um, preferred ideological predispositions, then I don't think you're very much a serious thinker. At the same time, however, um, and I agree with you that there has been a robust federal response and even limited government conservatives have reconciled the extent to which the um, this response will require hemorrhaging money in order to maintain payrolls for as long as we possibly can, insofar as we possibly can. Uh, classically liberal uh, economics types on the libertarian side of the ledger have had to confront the fact that um, if we're going to have the response that we are having, then border closures are a part of it. Uh, and whether or not that's productive is a debate, and I think it's probably less productive than necessary. But at the same time, I, the limited travel, both domestically and internationally, is definitely a part of this response. Um, and it will have deleterious side effects as well as positive side effects. What I what I have seen that I haven't seen think, that I don't think Democrats have particularly internalized is the extent to which we have seen a much more libertarian response and a robust federalist response, uh, a, a federal, a federated system um, in which the 50 states behave as laboratories, uh, which are all experimenting with various degrees to which you can um, have a robust uh, response from the state government or a more laissez-faire response. No one's taken a perfectly laissez-faire response to this, but some states have and some states haven't. And everybody's making mistakes along the way. Maybe 
uh, the states that were a little more loath and wanted to, to loath to close things down at a top down level and deferred to their municipalities. Maybe they acted too slowly. The states that have had a much more robust robust response have been chided in part in, in times by the courts for um, uh, infringing upon civil liberties. Uh, all everybody is making improvising and they're making mistakes along the way, and they're due a certain amount of forbearance in the near term. But what we have seen uh, is a, a libertarian response in ways that I think confounds people's ideological prescriptions for this sort of thing when they think that there deserves to be a much broader, more nationalized, more uniform federal response. Everything for, on the state level from sacrificing uh, uh, regulations that prevent you from practicing medicine across state lines to delivering alcohol to homes, a lot of that has been gone by the wayside. That is, in fact, the point of emergency declarations. The vast, Most of them just free up money, but the vast majority of the powers that are ceded to states and by national emergency decree allow them to circumvent regulations that are otherwise valuable uh, in a time in normal times, um, in part because they prevent uh, malpractice and they're generally uh, accepted practices because they maybe they entrench certain businesses uh, competitive advantages in the marketplace, but they also serve to protect individuals from malpractice by commercial firms. But those go by the wayside in an emergency. Uh, that's a much more libertarian response to this crisis than I anticipated. It has been effective. Uh, and useful, and quite a few of these regulatory mechanisms may not survive this crisis. Um, so while I am willing to confront a lot of my priors when it comes to the big government response that we've, what we've seen, um, I think the Democrats need to do a little bit of confrontation of their ideological, ideological proclivities as well. You mentioned Germany, for example. One of the reasons Germany has had such a, a effective response to this virus is because its government and its healthcare system are decentralized, are federal. Uh, and that sort of experimentation is, uh, is certainly quite valuable in a, a crisis like this that demands as much experimentation in as short a period of time as possible. You guys talked about this on the podcast about what de Blasio has done around Orthodox Jewish communities. And this is strikes me as just uh, reprehensible, and I mean, I, I mean, in the language, it, 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 it's strange in the in the age of identity politics uh, that on the left, it seems like anti-Semitism has become the acceptable form of discrimination on the left. Like it, beca- it becomes, in, in fact, it's it, it it's not just tolerated; it's almost celebrated. I mean, is that? I mean, it, it, do you do you kind of feel that in New York right now? I mean, this is it. Se- it seems like De Blasio is 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 exhibiting something that uh, that as someone who is a democrat like it, this is something that embarrasses me on the left the, the degree to which anti-semitism is and again it, you can critique israel's policies and things like that you, these are complex issues but the tropes and the narratives that are used and that, that you know that that, that if I, I feel like liberals on one level like you know if, if, if the standards they use you know I, I feel like when you watch sean hannity nothing's racist unless it's a it's a cross burning on somebody's house like nothing can be racist ever uh, and liberals are the other thing anything can be racist except when it comes to anti-semitism they have the hannity standard yeah. like, unless you really um you know said the, the most it, it did the most offensively vile thing i mean this this is, is it seems like de blasio is is exhibiting something that's worrisome in the culture at large quite quite yeah um yeah so i mean i think you put your finger on it there uh, for for the left which is admirably to a degree um very sensitive about um language and the uh potential for uh sensitive individuals to misconstrue 
And even the potential for um, certain types of language, no matter how anodyne your intention may be, uh, to exacerbate racial tensions, uh, that is evident across the spectrum on the political left, except when it comes to uh, Jews, which is apparent in that tweet where he said, you know, um, this is my message to the Jewish community and all communities uh, as sort of negating the the intention there. And you're also, you know, you're in the midst of a real anti-Semitism issue in New York City. There have been violent anti-Semitic incidents with increasing frequency over the course of the last couple of years. So to not be sensitive to that, even in the face of this uptick in violence, is uh, is worrisome for because it indicates a blind spot. And I, I put my finger, I think, on that blind spot in my book, uh, Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America, which describes a social justice Which you philosophy. can get for 1998, wherever people, you know, wherever you can Correct. buy it. Wherever you can buy it. service, I don't know where you, you Amazon, basically, is, we're limited. Of course. So I think um, Bill de Blasio uh, has spent a lot of his politically formative years on the far left end of the political spectrum. And the philosophy of intersectionality is particularly popular on that end of the spectrum. And I critique intersectionality very uh, harshly in that book. It is a philosophy that compels you to think in stereotypes. Indeed, you have to think in stereotypes in order to be enlightened. You must understand the racist tropes that have been pervasive over the course of several generations have typified and characterized how our institutions have evolved, both social and political. And in order to effectively navigate this environment, understand how these pathologies overlap and how they affect our daily lives in unconscious ways, uh, you must educate yourself in racist narratives. Now, there's an, a valuable ex- uh, element to that. Um, there's nothing noble about shielding yourself from the ugly side of life. Nevertheless, if you are compelled to think in stereotypes and internalize those stereotypes and think of people not as individuals, but as the various demographic traits they inherited at birth, you're going to internalize quite a bit of uh, racism and bigotry. And for Jews, the stereotypical narratives that uh, surround them are narratives in the United States, at least, are narratives of privilege that they are rich and elite and successful and assimilated and they control the strings of government and media and what have you. Um, If you've internalized that narrative, then you've allowed yourself to believe that this is a social class that is essentially white and privileged um, by any other standards. Now, this is only something you can apply in America. There's something of an anomaly that in the United States, the Jewish community is as assimilated and as successful as it is. That is not, not the case anywhere else on the planet Earth, with the exception of the state of Israel. Um, nevertheless, that is the kind of philosophy that was applied in the Women's March. The Women's March suffered a variety of uh, anti-Semitic scandals involving the ejection of some of its members at the highest level of the organization's institution, not because they disagreed politically. They all shared the same political philosophy, but their Jewish members, their white Jewish members were accused of perpetuating white nationalism, white supremacy, whether they knew it or not, whether they wanted to or not, simply because of the accidents of their birth. Um, I don't know what you call that besides prejudice. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a, a couple of philosophers I've had on the podcast where they do a, a podcast called Why Theory. And they're kind of trying to bring back theory in the academy. But they, they talked about like the whole immigration issue and they're seeing how Kant and Hegel would handle it. And so you have this this trope where like, okay, the immigrant, the undocumented worker is both Speedy Gonzalez and he's going to outwork you and take your job. And he's also uh, shiftless and lazy and corrupt, you know. 
and so the Kantian approach, well, these both can't be true. They said the Hegelian approach would be, no, they are both true. The, every, the undocumented worker, all the undocumented is both probably industrious and shiftless, just like everyone in society. All of us are shiftless and industrious. Like all, and so we all contain multitudes. Right. And so, so they were saying that the interesting thing is like, one, and this is what the feminists have taught us, right? The Madonna whore complex. Like, well, we, I, you know, the woman I want to do crazy, sexy things with, it can't be the mother of my children. Feminists are like, no, that's not fair. Cause if we can't be contradictions and tensions, we can't be a person. And it sounds like what you're saying is the intersectional movement actually violates this Hegelian boundary by not letting people be a multitude. Like that, that, that you actually know that these people have to be this and these people have to be that. And people can't be uh, a multitude of things at once. Well, again, as a, as a theoretical philosophical outlook, something that if it was limited to the four walls of the Academy would be valuable um, as a thought experiment, um, as an organizing principle, as a philosophy that you apply at the institutional level for the for the objective and advantage that every political organization seeks, which is the acquisition of political power, um, usually through either influence over elected officials or by get, becoming elected officials yourselves, uh, it becomes a self-defeating philosophy. The Women's March is a great example because after these anti-Semitic controversies, the Democratic National Committee, which had previously wrapped its arms around this organization in an unqualified manner, had to distance itself, totally sever its relations. Its executive members, uh, like Linda Sarsour, uh, who is herself a brilliant anti-Semite, was just defenestrated from this movement. Uh, Do you have have charts on your wall like virulent anti-Semite? She is here. Every day anti-Semite. I, I do not. I like that you're like a virulent sure. anti-Semite. Like, I like that you had that category available right off the top of your I just, head. You know, I mean, the, the two of those sort of intersect. Um, just back to the intersectionalism. <laughs> yeah. Look at you. Uh, you're being very intersectional. <laughs> sure. Know thine enemy, as it were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is... That's my it's it's a critique of the philosophy that I think bears out because those who are the strictest adherents to this belief structure have done themselves no favors by applying it in an ideologically rigid manner to uh, situations in which you're better served by being fluid and flexible, which is how politicians succeed as politicians by being um, their capacity to project the image that their audiences want to hear. And by having the sort of the shameless capacity to embrace and uh, events hypocrisy. Now, if you're a very, if you're a bedrock principled activist type, I mean, that's a kind of an offensive trait, but it is universal in the political class for a reason because it's effective. Uh, this is something that is uh, abhorrent to the strict ideologue uh, of which I am one, so I'm sympathetic, per- certainly, to the uh, the activist left in this sense. Um, but it, in intersectionalism's case, it promotes, I think, a way of thinking that is uh, antediluvian, just backward, and it's certainly unproductive in an organizing as an organizing principle. And I demonstrate that in my book, I think, pretty comprehensively. Do you think? Do you think that part of the problem? I think with so many things in life, like this, when you're using it descriptively, okay, people. We all have prejudices, and sometimes these things take on systemic things. If everybody has the group prejudice, think descriptively, it seems like you're saying it, it's not an unhelpful tool sometimes, but prescriptively is where you seem to see it as is really deficient because you there's not a, like if you're describing 
some dynamics of inequalities, which you want to be attuned to in society. So we can think about, you know, because we're a big, diverse democracy. There's nothing, I mean, there's no, I can't think of a big, functional, diverse democracy. India, maybe, if you could call it, I mean, developing, fun- but like, you know, I mean, anything as close to as big and diverse as we are is autocratic. I mean, so we have to be sensitive to these things. But it sounds like what you're saying is like the descriptive sensitivity can't easily be translated into a prescriptive policy agenda without the sort of cure being far worse than the disease. Yeah, I, I think that's perfectly fair. I actually don't have a whole lot to add to that. I think that's a good description. Well, there you go. You should have had me write <laughs> the intro to your book. Do not you, very helpful as an interlocutor. I apologize. No, 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 that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Now, do you, so did, can I, like, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but did you vote for Donald Trump the first time around? No. Who did you vote for? Um, in New Jersey, which has its primary, where I live, which has its primary in June, the primary is essentially over right. at that but point. But I mean the so first election, the first time who'd you vote for? In the general election, I, I think I wrote in Evan McMullen, actually. Oh, yeah. Because he, he, didn't, he didn't make ballot access in New Jersey. Um, not that I'm particularly proud of it, but uh, that was my my protest vote. He's like a non-sexy Jack Ryan kind of character. You know, is it more of a non-sexy? <laughs> I've met him several times. He's a very nice guy, but um, in, in his post-political career, he's um, become indistinguishable from a Democrat. And uh, it was my intention to cast a protest vote. And if I wanted to vote for a Democrat, I'd have done so. So do you, do you is this, does this bother you when like, there's kind of these never Trumpers? Or now you guys are a never, never Trump. What do you guys say? Never, never Trumpers. Like, like ne- you guys have this great phrase. We're never, not never Trumpers. We're never. Well, I, I don't, no, no, no. I don't subscribe to any of that. Um, but somebody said something in the last podcast about, about like never, never, like the opposite of never Trumper. Like you're like. We're against we're against the always never Trumpers or something. You're a closer like listener than I am, and I'm on the show. I honestly don't remember <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't believe any of us subscribe to a, a particular, a particularly rigid view. I think we're all very critical. Some of us more than others, very critical of the president, um, but certainly not reflexively so because that's a uh, intellectually uh, stultifying. And B, just dishonest. I mean, if you're going to be a serious anal- analyst, you should you should be able to sacrifice your priors every once in a while. Yeah, do, yeah. And do you guys find? I mean, is it frustrating when you see people that like? It seems like there's a lot of people like you're saying Evan McMullen, like a lot of these people that like Nicole Wallace, for instance, like all these people that like were cons- or conservatives who were really frustrated with Trump, and then but what you're saying they it, it seems like they become. Uh, kind of de-, de facto Democrat somehow. Well, I don't know. I can't speak for them at all. Um, or at least I, in I their voice, I mean, well politically in their voice. You know, briefly, yeah. No, I don't. I don't know. Um, I, I think it's better for them to to determine, you know, how they would look at things and how, what their outlooks are. Uh, I can only speak for myself in that regard. Now, you. We talked a little bit about anti-Semitism a few minutes ago. You are Jewish by background, by background, but I, it seems like. I remember from the podcast, like you're not, you kind of, you're not a particularly observant kind of. No, not really by birth. I mean, my name gives it, gives it away. Noah Rothman is a, is a very Jewish name, but my middle name is uh, uh, Christopher because my mom is Irish Catholic. Uh, so uh, I'm not a bur- by birth um, Jewish. You've got the most colorful background. If you want to. It's relatable, right? as it, it were. Like, Irish, Irish Catholic, and Jewish is the best. If you, yeah. this is the thing you'd want to inherit if you were in a Woody Allen movie, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think that's actually a plot line in one of those movies. But um, yeah, so I, I wasn't raised in a 
in a church formally, and uh, I don't have any uh, background in uh, in organized religion uh, growing up. So, and I, my children aren't in an organized church either. So, um, we just uh, have, a, I suppose, a loose attachment to Judaism more culturally than anything. I'm, my my grandparents, I don't believe, were members of a shul, but uh, culturally, um, Judaism is impossible to escape. If you're of Jewish background, you can't you can't run away from it. And you shouldn't want to. Um, so I appreciate being that side of my family, um, observing that through uh, my affiliations with Commentary Magazine and, and elsewhere. And uh, my kids go to a JCC, for example. But uh, that's the extent to which we're we could be even be remotely considered per- orbiting the periphery of Jewish life in America. I mean, that's interesting because it, it seems the way I look at things right now in, in our in our sort of hyper tribalized you know political cultural landscape is that it, it tends to be that on the right the right is the pro religion kind of movement and the left tends to be even like I, I, I like the people that in liberal media that are religious tend to be a little embarrassed about it unless you're African American which you kind of get a pass like it, it's an interesting dynamic and on the right it even the the agnostics like um like Greg Gutfeld and other, you know, people, they're, they're kind of, you know, they almost, uh, they wind up being religious apologists. I mean, is that, so is that an interesting space well, to if you inhabit? Don't, like, cause I mean, you're, you on, you're a, on the right and you're not, and you're not a kind of person with like, with, you know, solidified or kind of like locally identified religious convictions. And yet you're kind of, but you're on the team that generally is, is sticking up for religion is something that kind of makes the fiber of, the in the fabric of our society a better place well of course i mean beyond the uh constitutional protections uh and individual liberties associated with religious uh practice it is the conviction of limited government conservatives that communities function as a result of the individual localized mediating institutions that can create and cement communities um organized churches and synagogues and mosques and half a dozen other organized religious affiliations and institutions perform a service that government simply cannot, uh, no matter how local the municipal structure is, how localized and uh, how uh, attentive it is to community needs, it will never be able to create the the kind of community that um, local mediating institutions perform. And churches are only one of those uh, activism organizations, community centers, um, half a dozen other organized organic groups uh, cement those communities, create a sense of uh, communitarian structure, fulfillment, and, and, you know, essentially uh, create the, the bonds that keep somebody from experiencing extreme alienization, atomization, the kind of pervasive loneliness that leads to the deaths of despair and epidemic in this country at this point that we've seen. Um, that is the, that's the social conservative prescription there. Um, also, if you're just a thoughtful guy and you're interested in philosophy and Western philosophy, you are woefully undereducated if you have not studied the history of Western theological thought. Um, that is the font from which so much uh, Enlightenment thinking, um, post-Enlightenment thinking, and pre-modern thinking that uh, buttresses our institutions and our political culture sprung from. Uh, so that's something that you have to acquaint yourself just as an educated individual, not as a religious person. A, a friend of mine, Mark Oppenheimer, is a Jewish journalist and 
uh, used to be the New York Times religion beat guy. He said, you know, uh, I heard him interview Al Muller on his podcast. And they said, what should Jews that want to learn about uh, Christianity read? He, 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 Al Muller, the Southern Baptist seminary president said, you know, John Stott's basic Christianity or something. And Mark said, thank God you didn't say C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity. <laughs> if another evangelical comes up to me at a religious college and says, if you just read C.S. Lewis, you, you'd beca- you become a convert. I'll shoot them and myself. Do you, so, <laughs> do you find in conservative circles, are there religious people that are like, look, Noah, if you just read old C.S. Lewis or something, or if you just read, like you, you would, or is there kind of a Jewish, are there, are, there, are, there, are people at the cocktail party, two or three scotches in and they're like, look, I could put you, it's like, a, I sold cars right at college. And the guy who trained me said, Put your drive your new car into that spot right there. Are they ever like I could put you in this religion right now? Does that happen? I don't know. I I don't know if I've been courted for conversion. Um, if I have, I I didn't internalize it because I'm not a susceptible candidate. I don't think. Um, I mean, I mean, why not? But you, absolutely, you, you, the cult of C.S. Lewis is a, is a very real thing. I'm not I'm not sufficiently familiar with his works um, beyond the the fiction uh, to comment on it but absolutely there is a, a profound reverence for his uh his theological his more theological works but aren't you a little thin like when i when when like i get when mormons or jehovah's witnesses like pass my door by i'm like don't you think i'd be a credit to the team i mean don't you kind of like, want, like it's just it's like hey I, i've got things they don't knock that one they they i think i'm on a list though because i'm religiously observant and i usually talk to them about biblical interpretation and like two minutes into it they're like oh no 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 ah. no, no no we're off we're we're off the uh, no no you're just not so daniel patrick moynihan has this famous quote i just want you to react to it i'm sure you know it the central conservative truth is that it is the culture not politics that determines the success of a society the central liberal truth is that politics can change a culture and save it from itself do you do you think there's do you think that's right? Do you think it's unbound? I mean, who's a provocative, so the, interesting the, guy? Yeah, a fascinating individual and a real intellect. Um, that quote gets cut off before the end. And the end is the most important part. Um, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me. But he, is, he essentially posits that those two, that, that conflicting often dynamic, um, makes us better. We are a better people as a result of this conflict. And it is not a conflict that will ever be resolved, nor right. should it be resolved. Um, and that is a, is a very uh, astute observation about uh, human nature, not just the political social compact in which we all are participants. Um, but yeah, no, I think, I think that's a, a fair observation and that I think that he understood that these were uh, dynamics that would be perpetual and were never meant to have a, a victor in this conflict, nor there cannot be, nor should there be. And I think that's a, and it, a, a very uh, astute observation about, uh, about not just the American experience, but the human experience. I'm struck by the fact that like George H.W. Bush coming out of his camp, his convention, I think was 20 points down to Dukakis. And I think won like 40 States. I mean, that is un like, this is unfathomable now. I mean, like we're like now, like if you win a three or five, you know, Obama beats Romney by what four or five points nationally, and we're like, wow, that's a landslide. I mean, the, do you, do you think we're like we'll ever get back to a day in the foreseeable future where somebody could? But that's astounding. You're twenty points down and you win a landslide. I mean, that like that yeah, many sure. people seem to be up for grabs. It just it seems like everybody sure. is so tribal now. Well, but then, and then four years later, he had a 90% approval rating. And then less than 12 months after that, he won, what, 38% of the vote or something like that. 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's sort of a romanticism of the dynamism of uh, American political, national political culture, like presidential elections uh, in the 20th century, uh, the post-war period to the end of the 20th century, that I, I find sort of perplexing. First of all, it's a very small N. The number of elections you're analyzing here is is pretty limited. So if you're you're finding trends in a data set that is by no means comprehensive. Uh, and I mean, rules were made to be broken, right? Uh, Donald Trump is going to run for reelection with his last quarter GDP in negative double digits. Now there is no model by which he should even be remotely competitive in that race. And he may not be, but from our current vantage point, you can quite easily see a condition in which he does not have the, the floor that he's enjoyed that 42, 43, 44% job approval rating just fall out from under him. It has not yet. Um, so it'd be hasty of us to render a judgment uh, on conditions that are so unprecedented. You know, when I was in uh, high school and college, the, uh, you know, the, the perennial swing state was Missouri. You got to win Missouri if you're going to win the electoral college. And nobody thinks that anymore. Afterwards, it was Florida and Ohio, Florida and Ohio. You know, you can't win without them. They are the the, the per- perpetual swing states. They are cut right down the middle. Uh, Ohio is all but off the board for Democrats now, and Florida is sort of shaky. Uh, and now we're talking about the upper Midwest as though it is, a you know, the linchpin of national elections. And when it was rock solid, deep blue for most of my adult life, and it will be another combination of states moving forward. And the last president will always have the the formula for a resounding victory here and into the foreseeable future. Coalitions are forever shifting. Um, The interests within them change and align. And one group drops out and another, um, you know, takes their place. Uh, I think Sean Trande likens it to a water balloon in which you push on one side and the other side rises. And that's a a pretty good visualization of the dynamic that political coalitions are forever, uh, forever dynamic, forever shifting. And it would be a true mistake for any political coalition to take one of their constituent demographics for granted because they're nothing is permanent. I have a friend who's a evangelical Protestant minister and, and a conservative Republican. And he wanted to bet me a bottle of high end spirits. This is before the coronavirus that Trump um, would win reelection. I was like, no, nah, I can't take that bet. It's too close. And he says, all right, let's revisit the bet. Let's, Will he get more votes than he did last time? And I said, well, I'll take that bet because no incumbent ever gets. I mean, it's just so rare. I mean, that any incumbent gets more votes. So then he called me today and it's like in the virus, like we might need to renegotiate the bet. (laughs) Do do, do we do percentage of the vote? I mean, like, do you think so? If you were me, how would you renegotiate the bet? Like, because I think my bet was pretty good that he was not before Corona, even if he won again with the Electoral College stuff, he probably was going to get less of the popular vote just because of demographics. But now, I mean, how, how would I, so I, mean, I don't know. This could, be a, this could cost me like $70 now. Like, so yeah, I, I think you put yourself in a terrible position. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know if you can quote me, but I think George W. Bush improved on his popular vote performance in 2004, I think. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't normally happen, but Donald Trump would have to do that. It's very, hard to imagine him winning re-election again with 46% of the popular vote. That's not impossible, but it's certainly, you know, the probably the lowest possible floor you can be at to still take the electoral college by the razor thin margins that he did in the states that were on the bubble that he won, like Wisconsin and Michigan. Um, so I would 
if he were to win re-election and you're betting on his re-election, then you would probably have to assume that he would improve on his popular vote margins at least a little bit. Just the, yeah, just the base level assumption that he wins, he would have to draw more votes. Well, I mean, I guess you could get, though, I mean, I guess you could get 30,000 votes in three states. Like I, mean, like, I mean, it is possible, right? I mean, it's kind of a, I mean, it is a possible. Sure. I, I mean, popular vote, I mean, and we're talking about raw numbers here, not the relative percentage. Right, 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 right. Relative percentage could be much worse as far as a popular vote loss than in 2016. 2016, um, had, it was the highest turnout, but I think probably everybody estimates that 2020 is going to have a spectacularly high turnout. I mean, in on April 7th, Wisconsin had this very controversial election, um, uh, election for, you know, not just the presidential primary, but a Supreme Court seat. Uh, state Supreme Court seat. And it was the highest turnout they'd ever had in the state. Uh, even when only probably, I think, 50% of the, maybe less, it was uh, it was uh, about 1.55 million people turned out and only 450,000 of those were in-person voters, all absentee. And everybody anticipated that it would be a pretty uh, relatively low turnout election because the stakes are relatively low on the presidential level. The Supreme Court is very important if you're very plugged in. Um, but for a general electorate, that's not. That's a lower tier. That's a down ballot race. Um, but nevertheless, the amount of the turnout that we've seen over the course of 2020, um, even before this hit, was pretty spectacular. And since the Donald Trump era, turnout and interest in politics has been pretty high. So I would bank on the highest turnout ever for a general election in November by an order of magnitude. With Corona. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it, you can't predict the dynamic two weeks down the road, much less you know six months. So I wouldn't dare. Um, but I would be shocked if we had all mail ballots, for example. I don't I don't think every state will comply. There is no state. There is no federal election. States hold elections and the states will dictate the terms of those elections. And some states will decide to go all mail and some states will decide to have absentees and polls with, you know, mitigating efforts, you know, people spraying and down every so I, oh, there will be a, a, a plethora of different options out there as far as voting goes. I'd be willing to bet that it's not going to be an all mail election in 50 states and all territories. Uh, nevertheless, you know, it's proven, I think, by Wisconsin's performance that you can still have a record high turnout election, even if the majority of the ballots are cast by mail. It's interesting. Why don't liberals care about courts? I mean, this is fascinating to me because I think this is something that conservatives have figured out and motivates them. And and even though like maybe liberals have an elect have a demographic majority, the courts are. I mean, this is real power. And it, it, like, do you have any like? I mean, conservatives get this and vote. And, and, and you know, and even they're like, okay, Trump might be reprehensible morally, but he's going to get justices, and we're going to like. Why don't liberals get that? Do you think it's just because they have we have like liberals have so much cultural power that they think they don't need the courts? Well, conservatives, if you're plugged into conservative political thought and conservative um, political opinion, um, the uh, discovery in the penumbra of meaning within congressionally passed law by uh, activist judges that essentially legislate from the bench is something that preoccupies conservative thought and has preoccupied conservative thought for generations. It is something to be addressed very aggressively. I don't know if the same is true on the left. Second, conservatives view government in negative terms, um, basically blocking action. Uh, the less legislation, the better. Certainly the less interpretation from the bench, the better. Um, it is purely an effort to stop, thwart the express intent of Congress or state legislatures in law. 
that the courts exist to perform. They don't exist to find new meaning in existing statute. Uh, that is at least the conservative philo- philosophical bench baseline from which you approach um, uh, nominating justices. So with that in mind, you know, if the, if the progressive intent is much more positive and uh, creating new um, through legislation, new rights, for example, or uh, new prerogatives that government can pursue, then you would be much more focused on legislating by nature. Uh, it w- you can't you can't divine the kind of rights that you would find from you know a judge, even if the judge shares your particular political uh, leanings. Because if they were to, for example, um, for most of my adult life and until I think like 2018. Uh, litmus tests were an express taboo. You could not have a litmus test for a judge. Barack Obama very explicitly denied that he would ever impose a litmus test for judges uh, on uh, for, the, for the nomination of judges. Conservatives have uh, paid obeisance to that narrative, but haven't necessarily followed it in practice. And in as of 2018, when we began to dip our toe into the primary season, imposing litmus tests on judicial nominations among Democrats had become not just not taboo, but a box you had to check. Uh, no longer do they anticipate that uh, the public will react harshly to the notion that a justice should demonstrate before their nomination that they will rule in a particularly political way on issues that have not even yet come before them, on briefs they have not read, on arguments that have not yet been made. Um, that was a, a a real taboo. It was sort of something that happened, but you didn't dare speak it. Uh, but now that's, isn't that that's the cheapest the lie that goes down the political pike that there's no litmus test because everybody knows there's litmus test. Barack Obama was not going to nominate a pro-life Supreme Court justice. Donald Trump's not going to nominate a pro-choice. I mean, that, that, this is one of the th- things that seems like so like deceptive in the sense of, of course, you're going to have litmus tests. That's why we have politics and we have interests and elections. And- uh, yeah, but that's the job of a, of a legislator, not the job of a, of a justice. Your, your job as a justice and a legislator who's nominating that justice should at least demonstrate some fealty to the concept that a judge will not prejudge a case before them before it has come before them, before the arguments have been made. That is such a perversion of the process that it is something we should recoil from. And it's valuable to at least maintain some fealty to the concept, even if it's not necessarily something that you practice, uh, you know, you practice what you preach, but you got to preach it. Because otherwise, we're really sacrificing a bedrock principle that I don't know if we can get back. So you've talked a lot about priors and, and I would say presuppositions and kind of things and how the coronavirus is like, may I all check our priors. I mean, what are some things that your priors that you've checked over the past few years, maybe in the virus or before that, like that you that were particularly poignant and powerful? And you're like, oh, my gosh, maybe I got this wrong. Like, are there things that like that were that were really existentially significant once you investigate them? um, So I'm generally uh, predisposed towards classical liberalism when it comes to trade. I think this is a very important weapon in the the classically liberal toolbox, um, the promotion of values through commerce and the promotion of uniform standards of um, international uh, engagement in what is fundamentally an anarchic system, the international environment, uh, that the classically liberal mission, the promotion of universal human values are advanced by that. And I mourn the extent to which I think that this crisis will probably sacrifice a lot of those values. Nevertheless, um, I'll say that 
you know, I, I uh, while I'm supportive of the idea of repatriating, for example, technologies and manufacturing from China that is national has a national security element to it. Uh, I am of a mind now that I, I completely misread and disregarded the notion that health technology and medical technology would be a part of that. Um, so the, now the repatriation of uh, medical protective equipment manufacturing capacity and pharmaceuticals is absolutely imperative. Now, that's a two-way street. China is uniquely dependent upon the United States for medical technology, for cancer therapies. Um, it's not as though we are completely hostage to China, but nevertheless, there will be a much more conflicting relationship moving forward, and um, it moves ahead a kind of a predisposition in that I've had towards international relations, which is essentially that China is a problem for another decade, that this is a rising power, that it understands that the time is on its side, and it is therefore much more risk averse. Now, that risk aversion is why we have this crisis. Uh, unfortunately, it was the paranoid nationalism of the Chinese Communist Party that led it to uh, silence uh, whistleblowers on this thing, that led it to falsify, provide the WHO with falsified and flawed data in order to preserve its uh, internal political cohesion. That's not extroversion. That's introversion. That's the sort of thing that led me to say this is a problem for another day as opposed to a nation, a near peer competitor like Russia, which is very risk prone which understands that the time is not on its side, that it is a power in decline, and that if it is to uh, seek seek and achieve the advantages in the international stage that it wants to maintain for the next couple of decades, it's got to get them now, and that can be very risky. Um, So it was my understanding that the Chinese problem could wait, and we could work with it where we needed to, contain it where we needed to, but generally push this off until the 2030s and 2040s, because that's when we would be entering the Thuclidean trap where we're becoming very close to near peer competitors to from near peer competitors to peer competitors, which is a very dangerous condition in the international environment. So it was my view that it's the isolation and the paranoia. Because the Belt Road initiative is really scary stuff, right? I mean, what they're doing with infrastructure, this is really scary. I mean, yeah, I mean, not want a world where China is building the world's infrastructure and then, uh, you know, and then basically they go to places like Ethiopia, right? And say, well, we'll build you this port, but if you default on it, we own it. I mean, this is really scary stuff. Well, it comes with it all comes with a lot of strengths. Um, the United States maintains a model that you seek that that uh, it, its value is derived through its that people want to emulate it. Um, the Chinese model is very different. It, it works through coercion. Um, and you know, if you were to subscribe to these Belt and Road initiatives, then yeah, you have to adopt a whole lot of Democrat or Chinese lines on the international uh, scene. You know that are essentially diplomatic narratives, and you have to parrot them. Um, that was that's all part of the package deal. So things might have changed a lot as a result of this um, this virus. The places that got it early and got it hard, Iran and China got it, or in Iran and Russia and Italy rather, uh, got it as a result of their trade links. Italy got re- hit real hard. It was the first G7 nation to sign up for the uh, Belt and Road Initiative and its Chinese uh, manufactured manufacturing facilities and ports were where it got hit. In Iran, the city of Qum, which has been absolutely devastated by this uh, disease, um, it was imported there through Chinese laborers and Chinese manufacturers because that's where Iran goes to evade sanctions and Western sanctions. It has very few places with unfettered trade left and China's one of them. So it's it, the exposure to Chinese commercial relations was the very first means by which this, uh, this virus was transmitted. Uh, and you can, I think it'd be foolish not to expect 
a political backlash to that. Not just that, but also it's um, it's medical diplomacy, which also comes with a whole lot of strings attached. But it, now it's exporting a lot of stuff that just doesn't work. Um, it would be very silly, I think, for for us to presume that there would be no backlash. A lot of international relations scholars did. And um, we're already seeing the beginnings of the backlash in the form of, for example, the UK abandoning its contract with Huawei, or at least uh, preparing to abandon it. I don't suspect that survives. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that was very frustrating for American political officials when London decided to do that and events have subsequently intervened. Um, that's why straight, you know, straight line projections are almost always fallacious. They're predicated on a lot of data that, that, that exists today and that may not exist tomorrow due to unforeseen circumstances. And this was most surely an unforeseen circumstance. Do you think like what Obama did? I mean, I took what, what Obama was doing with the trans Pacific partnership stuff was, which he was opposed by largely by Democrats. Like I, I, I took him as sort of saying like, okay, the way we rein China in is kind of get them in as many multilateral things where they have to play by the rules. And like, like it, and that strikes me as intuitively smart. Like, okay, if we can just get it so we can get enough main markets that will say, if, if you don't like kind of, even if you have to, you know, step it up and you don't like it, you have to play by our rules. But do you think that's mistaken? Are we beyond the place where we can use multilateral stuff to make them kind of fall in line? I mean, how do we, how do we deal with it? I mean, this is, you know, like, I don't know how you deal with China in a way that like, I mean, it doesn't seem like the trade war thing that Trump is wanted to do is, is the answer, but I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't either. Um, my instinct is more towards, um, trade liberalism and, uh, establishing the rules of the road that comport with the, uh, stuff that we want to get done. Um, is getting as many people, if, if we can make a big trade liberal kind of, if the rules of the road are such, right, that you have to kind of lean towards trade liberalism or you don't get to play in the market. I and mean, this is TPP. Yeah. Right. TPP was, was, was that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of hostility towards that among the, uh, the right, the populist right and populist right drove a stake through its heart, but it was mortally wounded by Senate Democrats in 2015. It was Senate Democrats that determined that they would not support ratify this, uh, this, you know, a non-binding resolution around this thing in 2015 when it came their way. Um, the populist strain is uh, the antipathy towards free trade is, is apparent uh, on both ends of the political spectrum. And quite unfortunately, uh, they put us a little behind the eight ball when it comes to, to this sort of thing. Do I think in this in this environment with this pandemic, we would be in a better situation had we established and ratified TPP? Absolutely. I most certainly do. Um China took a lot of advantage of our absence in the Pacific Rim in that sense uh, in the years that intervened. Um, but I, I, I do think that there is a, a new risk calculation when it comes to dealing with Beijing, particularly on commercial relations. But that will manifest in all sorts of diplomatic and military dy- dimensions as well. The conflict is is only going to get worse and more tense. Uh, but trade will be a part of it. There's no, there's no world in which we can go back to something autarkic. Uh, there will there will there will be a place for China in the commercial world moving forward, no matter what happens. Um, but there's a much more conflictual relationship coming. Well, it's interesting because what you just said around like the populist thing on both sides. David French was on the show like last week, I think, and he he said something that I've said many times. Billy, that the real thing isn't right left; it's illiberal liberal. And so you have illiberals on the left and the right. And so you and I probably on a host of issues disagree politically, a whole host of issues. But like. And I don't, it's the first time we ever talked, but I have this, I, I know your work and I have this sense of, oh, this is the kind of guy who I think we share a lot of the same values. And it, 
It's interesting because that seems to be the big divide now. You have illiberalism on the populist right and illiberalism on the populist left. And it's this is kind of Jonah Goldberg argument like, man, we got a really fragile, great experiment here. Most of the world is tribal and populist. We've got this thing that has produced so much liberty and so much – prosperity and it's got its problems and we have to figure out how you how we you know deal with you know it's just like the renaissance you know it was a golden age but yet there was disparities and other things and we have to we have to figure out how to deal with some of the underbelly of it but this is really i mean we don't want to be in a world an illiberal world right i mean this is i mean yeah it just it just creates well, less argument is that it's, yeah it's it's, it's, it's amazing Jonah's argument is that it's, it's human basic human nature and that the structures that we've created for ourselves are um really unnatural Right and the sort of thing that require a whole lot of a whole lot of very psychologically taxing maintenance. Yeah, to yeah. to to continue. Um, and I think that's Kagan's argument on the international scene is that essentially the um, great power competition and conflict and real bloody conflict is is uh, the natural state of affairs in an anarchic order in which hard power is the determining. Uh, the final determining, uh, and I've subscribed to that. The final determining and liberal um, states don't go to war with each other. All wars are illiberal states now going to war with each other or a liberal and a liberal, illiberal state going to war, but we're not going to fight a war with France. <laughs> you know, I mean, li- li- we may have tensions and stuff, but liberal, I mean, liberalism creates peace. I mean, it really does. I mean, it is a real state. It promotes it. Yeah. It promotes it. Yeah. I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out that prospect. Uh, I think the McDonald's theory just it didn't bear out. I think it was the Falklands war that, that destroyed the notion that the, the McDonald's theory that two nations with McDonald's don't go to war with each other. Um, yeah, but, I wouldn't uh, say McDonald's because there's yeah, you, McDonald's is everywhere. Right. There's universal. <laughs> and thank God um, it is. But there was, you know, there was some logic to the theory when it was posited when there was you know, very you know, two competing spheres with uh, very fundamentally distinct views on commerce and international relations and commercial relations. Um, but yeah, I, I essentially agree with the, the thesis that illiberalism is the jungle to be beaten back. And once you stop doing that, the natural state of affairs is much more tribal and much more determined by uh, strong man, strong powers, and not international orders or institutions or anything so lofty and high-minded as that. And it would be truly a, a tragedy to sacrifice the kind of progress that has been made along those lines and over the over the generations. Noah Rothman, imagine you are like you just get like a massive amount of like leprechaun genie power, and you can shape the Republican Party's agenda, and you know your dream party. Like, what does it look like? Over the next eight years or something. Just like me. It would be me and just for <laughs> me and everything I like. I that like it. my party. Um, yeah. No, there's there's no one with whom I disagree uh, or agree with in total. If uh, I was so narcissistic as to believe that um, the, you know, the, the political culture should be molded along the lines of my personality, then I would seek office. I do not intend to ever do so. Uh, I'm willing to accept a fair amount of contradiction and frustration from our political class because, uh, it's, it's never going to be just like looking in a mirror. Um, but I, I have a pretty extensive record of advocating for the things that I think are, uh, important. And that's, that's the job as I see it. And I'm just going to keep doing that. No, you're uh, a great leading light in uh, our cultural discourse. I wish Mayor Tribe increase. And again, as a, to all my listeners, this is a, a, a Democrat's endorsement of Commentary Magazine in the podcast. I think it is one of the best pieces of public discourse in our on our cultural landscape today. And thanks for all the work you do and Mayor Tribe increase. Very kind of you to say. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure is all mine. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.